0: Acts chapter 17, we will look today for the first time at Paul in Athens, and then next week we will look more closely at the sermon that he preached while he was there. So Acts chapter 17, Paul has been driven out of Berea, he has to rush away to the sea, and they bring him 250 miles down to Athens. So we pick it up in verse sixteen now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, "What does this babbler want to say?" Others said, "He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus." And the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what these things, what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, Him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined the preappointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, For we also are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we'll hear you again on this. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us To see the growth of your kingdom, its progress in the capital of Hellenistic culture. And that you would help us to believe you, the God who created heaven and earth and doesn't need human hands. To believe what Paul says here about us as human beings, the offspring of God, living as you are living. and Help us, Father, to prepare for the judgment day when your resurrected son will come as a man and judge all people who have ever lived. Father, give us insight, give us grace, free us from distraction. We pray that you would bind the devil and keep him from distracting our thoughts and leading us astray. Help us to focus on your word. Help me to speak accurately and powerfully to your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul comes to Athens, the most famous city of Greece, and justly so, as New York is the cultural capital of print media in America, home of all the big-name publishers, home of all the big-name newspapers, and Los Angeles is the home of visual media, Hollywood, and photography Nashville, home of, of sound and music. Athens was all three of those rolled into one in the Roman Empire. A place where all the cultural products came from. At least that was its reputation. It maybe hadn't produced a hit in a couple of centuries, but there were still many philosophers there. And so Paul comes to Athens and does his thing, goes to the synagogue, tries to evangelize, and ends up getting hauled before the the court, the Areopagus, and called on to explain himself, which he does, but which he does in rather vague terms. The speech of Paul's highlights the commonalities between Christianity and Stoic philosophy because Just as it requires a permit in our day to set up any kind of large industrial concern, you have to have a lot of information and you have to persuade the bureaucrats that the thing you're doing will be beneficial and they can deny your permit for any reason or no reason. So it was in first century Athens. If they thought that you were trying to set up a new religion, you had to come to the bureaucrats with information and they could give you a permit or not, to start this new religion. And so Paul speaks in a deliberately impressive, but also deliberately vague way regarding his teachings. He doesn't want to fall foul of the laws about new religions, lest the permit to practice Christianity be denied in Athens. And so he stops mentioning the name of Jesus when asked to explain himself, and instead focuses entirely on God and man, even to the point of saying judgment will be administered by a man. Claim that sounds not religious, but philosophical, historical. So we'll look at Paul's uh, statements. He's bringing the kingdom of God to Athens. He's showing that the kingdom of God is greater than the greatest that pagan civilization has to offer. But he's also careful to make sure he doesn't fall foul of the law or get snared by this bureaucracy that wants to permit or not permit new religions in Athens. On well, the occasion, Paul comes to Athens. They send him away from Berea, 250 miles by road, further by sea, too far for the rowdy Thessalonian Jews to come and start another riot. He gets to Athens and he's stranded there by himself, We've seen that ministry throughout Acts is team ministry. Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas, Peter and John, Peter and John. Luke constantly repeats that they minister as teams, that there's no solo ministry, but this is an exception. <coughs> Paul accidentally got separated from the rest of his team, and so he's solo in Athens, and he's waiting. Paul gets stuck as a tourist. I'm in Athens, and I've got nothing to do because my ministry support team is not with me. But as he's in Athens, there's one overwhelming sentiment. Not, wow, this is a cool place. Not, wow, this is cool, I get three weeks to do Athens. I can see everything. Rather, the overwhelming feeling in Paul's heart is that he's provoked. His spirit is provoked. Where have we seen this word before? Well, this is the word the Old Testament uses consistently to talk about God's attitude toward his people's idolatry. Deuteronomy 32 is one great example. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations, they provoked him to anger. Paul is like God. Paul is provoked by the idols. Now, this is a missionary motive that Luke has not discussed prior to this point, but it's one that's very important for us to wrap our minds around. Do idols provoke you? Paul is upset when he says God should be getting this worship, and instead idols are getting this worship. Ancient writers joked that it was easier to find a God than a man in Athens. Luke tells us that the city was submerged in idols. This whole place is stuffed full of false gods of every description. And Paul sees that, and it makes him angry, not as a Jew feeling offended by in his religious sensibilities, but as a God-fearing man saying, this honor and glory and worship should be given to God, not to gold, silver, And stone. Paul sees the glorious Parthenon, surely one of the architectural triumphs of the world. And he doesn't say, How noble is the human intellect that can craft the Parthenon? Paul sees the Parthenon and he says, How disgusting that that level of care is lavished on the false goddess Athena. This is awful. This is outrageous. Paul cares that worship be directed to God. And in the same way, we should care too. We should get irritated when we see people tithing to the NFL instead of to Jesus. We should be upset by vast hordes of Buddhist monks. We should be angry by consumer sentiment or market stats getting more attention than the honor and law of God. Paul was. Paul cared about the worship of God, and when he saw that it didn't exist in Athens, that made him angry. And it should make us angry, too, that God is being defrauded. What is rightfully his is instead going to all kinds of other pathetic And wrong things. Not necessarily wrong in themselves, but things that are not what the living God is. Things that do not deserve that level of commitment and time and care. Missions exist because worship doesn't, as John Piper said. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And that's why Paul is here doing mission in Athens, because. God's worship doesn't exist there yet. Not as Paul wants to see it. So he's in Athens. What is Athens like? Well, other than being full of false gods, it's the home of Hellenistic culture. As I just said, it's Nashville, Los Angeles, and New York, wrapped into one. Uh, Koine Greek, spoken all over the eastern Mediterranean world, was a descendant of the Attic Greek, spoken in the region around Athens that was the prestige dialect of the day and that's what spread around the whole uh, the whole hellenistic world the city was full of philosophy of course home of plato and socrates adopted home of aristotle uh, the city was full of architecture i've already mentioned the parthenon certainly one of the wonders of the ancient world and there's much more great architecture there home of politics we uh, speak of course today of our polity as a democracy what is that that is a Greek word where was democracy invented democracy was invented in Athens in the 5th century BC the only place in the world that practiced democracy now the vast majority of nations in the earth claim at least to practice democracy so in politics the legacy of Athens is enormous. Uh, How about rhetoric? People like Demosthenes and others who spoke brilliantly. And we have, of course, literature, famous plays of Aristophanes, Sophocles, Aeschylus, the Greek tragedians, and comedians performed at Athens, written by... Athenians, well, this is a very cultured city. Yes, its best days are behind it. It, as I said, had not produced a hit in some time. But it lived on its legacy then as now. It's the home of Hellenistic culture. And Luke tells us one thing about their culture. They were all about novelty. Verse 21, they all spent their time and nothing else but to tell or hear some new thing. Now, our culture certainly is also fascinated with novelty. Uh, in our day, we associate it, of course, with the news that we literally call the new stuff, the new thing that comes in every little bit, and we all have to go check. Is there anything new on the news? What's happened anywhere in the world? Something of interest that really is of no relevance to anybody. But that's what the Athenians were all about. Uh, we certainly go for novelty in clothing, too. It struck me to read this sentence not too long ago about the Chinese clothing manufacturer Shine. They release 6,000 fresh stock-keeping units, including old designs and new colors, every day. 6,000 new designs every single day. That is novelty, my friends. The Athenians would love it. <laughs> Refresh my wardrobe with 6,000 new items a day. Well, not only are they fascinated with novelty, the flip side of that is somewhat odd. It wasn't like today where there's a religious free-for-all and anybody can start a new religion and the state is not involved in permitting religions. Rather, a new religion was, as I said, much more along the lines of a large industrial concern. The state is going to be involved at every step of the process, and there's a very good chance that the state is going to say no. Eckhard Schnabel, uh, classical and Pauline scholar, writes this, In both classical and Hellenistic times, the introduction of foreign cults and rites required the official authorization of the state. Josephus writes that the Athenians severely punished those who initiated people into the mysteries of foreign gods, This was, quote, forbidden by their law, and the penalty decreed for any who introduced a foreign god was death. The request to be allowed to introduce a new deity into a city would prompt the magistrates to ascertain the novelty of a cult, the desirability of allowing the cult, and the requirement of the cult, such as the need for a temple, altar, sacrifices, festivals, priests, and processions. So those of you who have dealt with the city planning office have some understanding of what Paul would be up against if he triggered in Athens the idea that he was starting a new religion. Paul was not there to engage with bureaucrats and try to get Christianity permitted as a new cult. Now, that's why he at first went around and did his usual reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, went to the marketplace and started just talking to Gentiles with those who would come and talk to him. But it quickly gets more formal as he talks to Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and they take him to the Areopagus. So what are Epicurean and Stoic philosophers? These are the only schools of philosophy mentioned in the Bible. Both schools of philosophy were founded around the year 300 B.C. We, in popular culture, of course, think of an Epicurean as someone who's a hedonist devoted to pleasure, To the point of death, I will just do what feels good until it kills me. And we think of a Stoic as the popular image of the philosopher. He took it philosophically. That is, like a Stoic. Or he took it stoically. But where do the names come from? Well, the Epicureans were the followers of Epicurus, who died around the year 300. 300 B.C., Epicurus taught, yes, that pleasure is the most important part of life, but he taught a rational, conservative pursuit of pleasure. Don't kill yourself seeking pleasure. All things in moderation. Don't overdo anything. That's the most pleasant kind of life. Epicurus further taught that the gods are not involved in human affairs if they exist at all and that there is no afterlife. This life... And the fun we can have within it is all that counts. So Epicurus dies 300 B.C. Zeno, the Stoic, dies around the same time, the founder of Stoicism. Stoicism is so-called, not because there's a Greek word, Stoic, that means unmoving, under duress. Rather, the word Stoa means porch. Zeno taught on the porch. Taught on the porch of a temple inside the colonnade, there in a Greek city. And so the Porchers, the Stoics, followed him, and they believed that there likely is an afterlife, but they also thought the gods are not too concerned with human affairs. Duty is important. We need to do the right thing, even though the gods don't care, because there may be some kind of afterlife. So these are the two sects of philosophers that Paul interacts with, and it's easy to say the Epicureans are the ones who said, what does this babbler want to say, while the Stoics said, slightly more seriously, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. And foreign gods, obviously Paul isn't preaching multiple gods, but perhaps Either they took their pagan culture that said there are lots of gods out there and just automatically applied that to Paul or they heard him say Jesus and Anastasia and they thought he was talking about some divine couple. Jesus and his consort Anastasia. That's not what Paul was saying but that shows how little understanding there was. They thought he was preaching multiple foreign gods as he described Jesus and the resurrection. Well, when Paul heard the word foreign gods, his antenna perked up and he said, "Uh uh-oh, the city planning office might get wind of this. I don't want to be known as a preacher of foreign gods, certainly not in Athens. That's the wrong, wrong approach in this city. So they brought him to the Areopagus. What is the Areopagus? Well, The Areopagus is a place and a body. It's a place, Mars Hill, uh, a rocky outcrop above Athens. So it could be that they just took him to the hill, but more likely they took him to the body, which was uh, something very similar to the current French Academy. Those of you who are familiar with French culture know that they take their culture very seriously, and they have a body called the French Academy, I won't try to say it in French because that would disturb them. But they're a group of very cultured people who are appointed either by themselves or by the state, something like that. And they get the right to decide whether a word is French, whether a cultural category is French. And they are censors empowered to reject things that are insufficiently French. So as I understand it, they've tried to put the kibosh on le weekend, not a French phrase, and so on. So this French academy is empowered to officially regulate French culture and to say what is French and what is not French. Well, in the same way, the Areopagus was a council, uh, maybe 50, 100, 150 people who were officially empowered to say what was Athenian, what was acceptable within Athens, and what was not acceptable. So it's a government body, it's a cultural body, it's, it's both at once. So it's not the city council, it's more a cultural body than a political body, but it nonetheless has authority within the city limits. So Paul is hauled to this Areopagus that will listen to him and then make a decision as to whether he is proclaiming foreign gods and whether he needs to be put into the bureaucratic process to get a permit for proclaiming his foreign god. So this is an opportunity for Paul to give an official account of his teaching, and they politely say, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. And notice what drives these people. May we know. The Athenians are concerned with Knowledge, that's their legacy, is the city of philosophers. They don't ask, may we feel? Or may we hear? Or will you draw a picture of the God you might be proclaiming? They ask, can we know? So Paul speaks to them throughout in this dialectic between ignorance and knowledge. He carefully majors on the theme of Knowledge as the vanquisher of ignorance. You said you wanted to know. That means you don't know. So let me tell you what you don't know. Paul speaks to them throughout as the corrector and helper of their ignorance. So he comes to the Areopagus, and there he emphasizes points that are in continuity with known philosophical opinions Within the city of Athens, he stands in the midst of the court and says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Now, this word religious is uh, very ambiguous. The King James Version translates it altogether to superstitious. Now, Paul probably didn't use it in that meaning, but the word does mean superstitious on the negative side. But it also means. Devout on the positive side. It's a word that contains within itself both sides of the religious coin. Paul says to them, you are very religious. Could be a good thing. Could be a bad thing. But certainly it was a well-known thing. And many ancient writers commented on how devout the Athenians were. There were lots of gods Lots of altars, and Paul says he saw one to an unknown God. Well, that's his opening. That's the point of contact that he finds, It's this question of ignorance versus knowledge when it comes to the divine. So Paul speaks to them on four topics. The first is God. You have an unknown God. uh, The authorities have permitted this altar, they've allowed it, this has the blessing of the state, and you freely admit you don't have a clue who it is. This is known from polytheistic times, certainly that Athens had altars to unknown gods, several ancient authors record that, but also there are prayers that have been found saying Zeus, Athena, Hermes, everybody, and if there's anybody I've missed, I'm praying to you too. Because if there are many gods, you never know if you've covered them all. And thus the altar to the unknown God. Paul says, the one you worship ignorantly, I proclaim. You don't know what you're doing. I will tell you what you're doing. So what does he tell them about God? Well, he focuses on the high God as the one who made the world and everything in it. Lord of heaven and earth. And he also talks about how God doesn't live in temples. The God who made the world doesn't need us to build him a Parthenon. He could build something better than the Parthenon with the snap of his fingers. Now that's an idea that was well known and had been discussed by various Stoic philosophers long before Paul's day. Paul is getting it from the Old Testament, which says that God does not dwell in temples made with hands but he's emphasizing something that is already an acceptable opinion that's within the window of discourse in first century Athens. God is exalted, but he doesn't need anything. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. Paul highlights creation. He highlights the proper way to worship. We don't have to give God anything because he doesn't need anything from us. Then he moves to discussing humanity. God made from one man every nation of men. Now that is a new idea. As far as we can tell, there is no classical source that talked about the human race being descended from a single individual. They, like uh, like our own scientists today, they would say something like, the human race originated from a band of 3,000 people. To which you, of course, want to say, well, didn't those 3,000 people come from 1,000 people one generation prior? And didn't the 1,000 come from 500 people? And didn't the 500 come from 200? But no one had thought it back to one individual. So Paul proclaims this, one man. Well, the Athenians don't hear that as a religious claim. They hear that as a Historical or philosophical claim. That's not the kind of thing that would need a permit. He adds, Paul adds, that human beings are controlled by God's providence. God has determined their times and the boundaries of their habitation. God makes historical periods, God sets out living spaces, He divides the lots on which we live. Again, this is probably relatively new to the Athenians. But it doesn't sound religious because it's anthropological. It's about the human race, at least as much as it's about God. (coughs) Then he goes on to say, where did human beings come from? Well, no, first he says, God set us in place. He determined historical periods. But that wasn't just for nothing, it was with a goal. It was the goal of seeking God, so that human beings could reach in the dark and grope, as you do on a high shelf that you can't see, trying to find God. God made us to seek him. Now again, relatively uncontroversial in Athenian philosophical circles. They could buy that. He is not far from each one of us. And then Paul quotes from at least one poet, possibly two poets. In him we live and move and have our being. Some of your own poets have said we are his offspring. Human being is the offspring of God, lives in God, moves in God. And Paul adds, therefore, God is more like us, not like gold, silver, and stone. God is living Not inanimate. Then he moves to the theme of judgment. God overlooked the times of ignorance, but now you need to repent because God has put a day on the calendar and he will judge the world by a man. So we covered God, we cover man, we covered judgment. Doesn't sound like a new religion though because it's a statement about a man. A man will judge the world. So, just as the Athenians and the classical world more generally had no idea of one original couple from whom the human race came, so they had no idea of a final judgment in history at which point every person would be judged. Paul is giving them something new, which is what they wanted. He also has a very abstract thing the divine nature in verse 29. This is the only abstract reference to the divine nature in the entire Bible. The Bible always talks about God as a personal being. And this is the place, the only place where it uses the impersonal idea of the divine nature. Paul is speaking to philosophers, so he speaks to them in philosophical terms. Finally, he mentions resurrection. We know that this man will judge the world because he's been raised from the dead. (coughs) Once again, there's a divided response. Unfortunately, it's not really divided between those who believe and those who don't believe, as it has been in Acts. It's not that good. It's divided between those who don't believe and those who say, we'll give you another chance. Clearly, the Areopagus decides that he's not starting a new religion, that he doesn't need to go to the city permit office, that he doesn't need to be put to death for trying to win converts. They hear course at some level what they want to hear but they hear somebody whose philosophical ideas are not too far beyond the pale this guy fits in to the Athens that we know and love so Paul departed from among them it's easy to see in this the image of our own open secular society if we're met with polite disinterest and a little bit of laughter well hey at least we're not met with riots and people actively beating us up and driving us out, as Paul had in Thessalonica and Berea. Sounds a lot like the attitude that our elites had until recently. Yeah, believe whatever you want. No, you don't need a permit. And we reserve the right to think you're stupid. So Paul leaves, but there were at least a few converts. Dionysius the Areopagite. So one member of the Council of the Areopagus joins him it's just one but it is a high status man somebody from the very top of athenian culture we also have a woman named damaris now it's well known that women were not allowed to go out and sit in on meetings of the areopagus in paul's day and so people have wondered where did this woman come from how did she hear him well maybe she heard him in the marketplace or the synagogue or perhaps she was not an athenian woman and had a little more freedom Uh, Was somebody from the sex worker class who were allowed to go out with men in public in Athens? We're not really sure. Commentators like to talk about it. What is Luke's point? People believe the kingdom of God came to sophisticated Athens and it did better, it looked better than anything that Athens had to offer. In the light, in the ignorance, the darkness of paganism, the light of the gospel shone forth. So what do we take away? Well, Paul's message about God, man, judgment, and resurrection might be just the thing our own post-Christian culture needs. We speak to them in categories they can understand, using language that's familiar, as Paul did, but adding new content, new ideas that come from the Bible, not from the philosophy books. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you that your word came to Athens, that Paul was starting a new religion, but one that was similar enough, the way he presented it, that he did not fall foul with the bureaucrats. Lord, we pray that you would help us to imitate Paul in presenting to our neighbors ideas about God, man, judgment, and resurrection, that they would be able to understand We praise you that there were converts even in Athens. We pray the same for New York and Los Angeles and Nashville and for our own city. The good news about Jesus would flourish even in the places of high culture. We ask these things, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.